This message is brought to you by Mill City Church in Lowell, Massachusetts. For more information, please visit millcitychurch.net. If you guys are excited about studying God's word together this morning, turn to Matthew chapter 22. If you've been with us this summer, you know that we have been in a message series called Encounters with Jesus. When the ordinary meets the extraordinary. And as we begin our time this morning, I want you to think about this question. What is it that God is really looking for? What is it that makes us right with God? What is it that's going to get us into heaven at the end of time? What is it that God ultimately cares about from his creation, from men, women, and children, just like you and me? And if you survey uh, the, the world, if you were to survey this area, your neighborhood, people would have a lot of answers. I would probably contend that most of the answers we would get would be about doing something. There, there are a list of works that we need to perform. There are religious rituals that we must follow. Um, there, there are deeds that must be done. And, and I would probably argue that the collective religion of those of us in the West is you get to the end and your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds and you're probably going to be okay for eternity. But even when you look into the numbers, the numbers just don't always say that we are as adamant about our religious beliefs as we say. Uh, there was a good, a really landmark study that was done on religion in America back in 2014. And it showed that there is a large contingency of American adults who would say that faith is a very important part of their life. Somewhere in the neighborhood of 75%. But then when you start asking deeper questions about whether or not they adhere to their faith on a daily basis. Or whether they pray regularly or read the scriptures regularly or attend worship on a weekly basis. That number significantly dropped down into the 40s. And so what we can see is that there is a chasm sometime that exists between what we say with our mouths and what we actually do with our lives. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, or if you've grown up in church, you're probably familiar with the Christianese vocabulary to, uh, to use uh, words to communicate your faith. I asked Jesus into my heart, or I walked down the aisle at a summer camp. Or we say things like Jesus is my personal Lord and Savior. But just like the greater public, oftentimes there can lie a chasm between what we say and testify with our lips, what we believe in our hearts, and what we actually do with our lives. Over the past few weeks in this encounters study, we have looked more closely at Jesus' encounters with some blue-collar fishermen, with a shame-filled woman, with a vile sinner and tax collector in Zacchaeus. And last week we looked at a pure, humble worshiper named Mary. And so we're looking at a very wide variety and diversity of personalities and people. This morning we're going to study an encounter between Jesus and a Pharisee. A theologically polished and morally upright religious leader. And you would think, humanly speaking, that since this is a zealous, theologically sound, 
morally upright man that this would be one of the easiest encounters that Jesus would encounter because this is the kind of person that we would think has it all together. But we're going to see something very different this morning. In the Gospels, there are multiple groups of religious leaders. And these religious leaders repeatedly tried to trip Jesus up theologically, practically. And among, among these religious leaders exist the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were the religious sheriffs in those parts of the world. They were both very influential and very authoritative. And when you looked at the, at the depth of their belief, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they had a lot of differences. They disagreed a lot theologically and religiously. And they actually hated each other. But they were united in their contempt and jealousy over Jesus. Isn't it just like our Savior to bring people together, right? Now, in the text in Matthew 22, Jesus had already silenced the Sadducees when they tried to trip him up. And so now the Pharisees get their turn. In verse 34 in Matthew 22, here's what the text tells us. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Today, I want us to see what happens when Jesus encounters a very religious, very pious, and very learned theologian. Someone who knew all of the spiritual answers, but actually missed, totally missed the heart of what it truly meant to follow God. And this morning, as we hear Jesus respond to his question, I want each of you, I want myself to be looking ourselves in the mirror and responding to Jesus in much the same way that he would want this man to respond to him. We want to see ourselves in the text today. We want Jesus to expose our own hearts like he did with this very religious man 2,000 years ago. So Jesus says that this is the greatest commandment. He says this is the great commandment. But what does the great commandment look like? What does it actually look like both in the first century as well as 2,000 years later here in the 21st? We're going to see at least three things as we make our way through this text this morning. And we're going to look at some, uh, some other principles along the way too. Here's one. What does the greatest commandment look like? Well, one, it's comprehensive devotion to God. Comprehensive devotion to God. The scriptures say that this Pharisee, he was a lawyer. It meant that he was actually an expert in the law. Now, if you, there are a lot of different uh, words that you could use for law. It could be law. It could be scriptures. Uh, it could be the Pentateuch, which would be the first five books of the Bible. It could be the Torah. It, you could even say that it's the entire Old Testament. And so for the sake of argument today, to simplify it for you and for me, we can say that this guy was an expert in the Old Testament scriptures. As a matter of fact, the Pharisees studied and debated what mattered and what didn't from the Old Testament. 
They had actually done all of the hard work and the heavy lifting of identifying not just the Ten Commandments, but the 613 commandments that are found in the Old Testament scriptures. And then after identifying the 613 commandments, they then divided them by levels of importance. Those that were great and those that were small. Those which were very weighty and those which were light. And anybody in their first century world, if they had asked this lawyer a question about the Old Testament scriptures, this guy would have had the answers. But yet he asked the question. Yet he asked the question, teacher, which is the greatest? Now we can see from the text that he didn't actually have the greatest of intentions in asking this question. Because the text tells us in verse 35 that he asked this question in order to test Jesus or to trip him up. To try to catch him in a double speak or double talk. Because if they could do that publicly then they would have evidence to actually quiet Jesus and to discredit him. It's not unlike what we do here in America in the 21st century in the political realm. We just try to find somebody to misspeak, tweet it out, and then we can completely um, berate them and, and castigate them. And that way, no one would ever take them seriously again. This is what this guy is doing to Jesus. But although he's the expert, he asked the question. And so here we see another truth uh, in the text. We see that Jesus questions the familiarity of this man's religion. And now by proxy, since we're reading the text this morning, I would say this in an imperatival sense. This morning, let Jesus question the familiarity of your religion. Because when you look at the text, this guy was someone who would have been very familiar with the commandments. He knew what he was asking. He probably even knew the answer that Jesus was going to say, perhaps. But he was so familiar that he missed the main point. I wonder this morning, what about you? What about me? We have questions, don't we? I mean, we have questions in society. We have questions even as kids. I don't know if you have small children in your house or you might have nieces or nephews or perhaps you're a grandparent today, but, but we have some really good questions that we're asked, right? So where do the dinosaurs go? We heard that one lately. Or what about the hokey pokey? Is that really what it's all about? What exactly is in a fruitcake? Have you ever come to that answer before? And perhaps one of the greatest mysteries of life, exactly how many licks does it take to get to the center of a Tootsie Pop? But real serious questions exist though, don't they? I mean, there are real questions in our culture about spirituality and eternity. Is it really important to go to church? I mean, can't I just worship God on the golf course or on the lake? Maybe we've used or heard that one before. It doesn't really matter what we believe as long as we just love each other, right? Isn't that all God wants us to do? Do all roads ultimately lead to the same God, to the same heaven? And did Jesus Christ really ever say that he is God? And did he really say that he is the only way to God? You see, there are a lot of things that we ask, and even in asking the question, we are making spiritual pronouncements, and they have become even familiar vernacular around us as a culture. But what Jesus shows us here with this first century lawyer, this first century expert in the scriptures, 
is that the familiar is often misunderstood. And it could be this morning that you are here and you could be a 15-year-old or a 20-year-old who has grown up in Sunday school or church. You could be a 60 or 70-year-old who could recite all the, Bible, the books of the Bible in order and recite a hundred different Bible verses by memory this morning. And when it comes to church and rituals and practices, you are an expert, but you could be so familiar with the things of God that you've actually missed the whole point of what he's truly after. You see, we're looking for a whole lot of answers from a lot of different people, but what we need is an ultimate answer. You don't ultimately need to know what I think this morning. You don't need to ultimately think, need to know what a poll, public opinion poll thinks. What we need to know is what God thinks. And we need an ultimate interpreter of his standard. And that's why this morning we can be thankful for Jesus. Because what Jesus' answer here is he actually answers with God's answer. And so in verse 36, I mean verse 37, Jesus responds and says to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Now, a closer examination of Jesus' response here reveals something that should actually shock those of us in this room who are experienced in all things Christian, regardless of what denomination you were brought up in. And here's the shocking response. Jesus doesn't give him anything new. Jesus doesn't come up with something edgy and modern in order to fit first century society or culture. What Jesus repeats is the most quoted scripture in all of Judaism. It's Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. A devout Jew, especially a man of this guy's religious standing and position in the first century Jewish world, he would have recited this passage two different times a day at a religious ritual. The average passerby would have known this scripture by heart. Everyone knew it. And Jesus, in essence, tells him, you do something out of religious duty, day in, day out, week in, week out, but you totally miss the true meaning of it. I want you to notice that Jesus didn't respond with a list of regiments, a list of rituals, or a list of spiritual disciplines. He didn't tell him that, well, you should start going to temple every week or you should start giving all of your money away or you should start uh, tweeting social justice causes on your social media page. Instead, what Jesus says is that the greatest commandment is actually an internal state of the heart, a heart of deep-seated devotion to God. And so this morning... Yes, let Jesus question the familiarity of your religion. But secondly, let Jesus question the authenticity of your faith. This is really what Jesus is getting at because he's bringing it to our heart, our soul, our mind. And see, what we're tempted to do at this moment is we're tempted to compartmentalize here and say that what Jesus wants us to do is he wants us to honor God and worship God in, in more areas of our lives. And so, if we worship God on Sunday, perhaps we can start worshiping God on Monday too, or perhaps on Wednesday, or maybe I've gotten this area of my life under control, but we should make Jesus 
Lord of different areas of our lives. But that would miss the point of the text entirely. When Jesus uses this phrase, heart, soul, mind, Mark actually adds strength. What he's doing is he's talking about a comprehensive devotion to God. That we shouldn't try to compartmentalize our faith. But we should be faithful towards God with all of our very being. That he is now the very worldview through which we see our lives and ourselves and others and the rest of the world. I remember being a kid. Some of you have heard me use this illustration before. As a kid, I was the kind of kid that didn't want any of my food touching each other on his plate. I wanted the peas over here in their compartment. I wanted the mashed potatoes in their compartment. And I wanted the chicken fingers in their compartment. And then put the roll over here. Do not let the pea juice or the gravy get on the bread. We don't want soggy bread. That was me as a kid. And for me, if too much of my food touched each other, it was all over. I just wasn't going to eat it. And some of you might have kids or grandkids, or maybe you are that kid in this room today. Hey, I feel you. I'm with you today. And I would like to tell you that life and adulthood has changed that, but it is not. I still operate under that rule today. But you know, some of us approach life and spirituality and faith like I did my dinner plate. You see, we have the spiritual compartment of our lives, and that's on Sunday morning or Wednesday night community group. But then we have school and we have work, we have family, we have friends, we have romance and sexuality. And if we're honest with ourselves, what we want to do is we want to compartmentalize our faith where we say, I can be faithful and I can be worshipful to God in its proper compartment, but don't get any of that God or Jesus stuff on my family or on my friends or especially not on my romance or my sexuality. And what we want to do is we want to keep all of these areas of our lives separate. But then even after coming to faith, what we want to do a lot of times is we want to try to fit God into more aspects of our tray. But instead, what Jesus is doing by calling our attention to the Shema and using that collective language of heart, soul, mind, and strength is he wants to show us that God is actually the full tray of life. And it might even be a better way of viewing life, not like my, my dinners or my lunches, but what God would want us to do is to say that every aspect of our lives is now to be thrown into a bowl. And we are to mix them. And we're to make a big jambalaya or casserole and God, no longer do we put all these different areas of our lives on a tray in compartments. But we're now putting all of our lives in this new compartment called Jesus. And he now consumes all aspects of our lives. And he is now the lens through which we view the world. And he is now, he is now the empowerment by which I live my life. You see, you don't need a change of behavior today. See, oftentimes we think in order to please God and honor God and worship God that what God is looking for is an external behavioral change. And if we can get the right behaviors, that somehow that will then transform the internal heart. But in God's economy, it's always from the inside out. Authentic faith begins in our heart. It is a heart comprehensively captivated by God and his word and his ways. You don't need a change of behavior. You need a change of heart. 
because the heart change produces the behavior change. It doesn't start with what you're supposed to do, what commandment you're supposed to follow, but who you're supposed to be. And the being flows, I'm sorry, the doing flows from the being. So what does the great commandment look like? Well, first, Jesus shows us that it's comprehensive devotion to God. Secondly, though, he says it also includes compassionate deeds towards people. Compassionate deeds towards people. He says a second one is like it. Now, this is huge language. And so he's not saying that there is like this great, great command here. And then there's this very secondary tertiary command down here that applies to people. No, he says a second one is like it. And so what Jesus is going to show us is that, yes, the, the, the first and great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And a, and a kissing cousin to that one is to love your neighbor as yourself. And so here's what Jesus is conceding to us. Jesus is conceding that you will be concerned about yourself. Jesus is telling us that it is natural, innate to the human spirit and human existence to look out for yourself. This is why you fight for your opinion. This is why you want to express yourself. This is why it is very innate to you to make sure that you feed yourself, clothe yourself, clean yourself, hopefully, like we, we look out for ourselves and, and, and I believe inherent in this text is it's actually a good thing that we do that. But the radical shift here is he says that you should love others like you love yourself. You should look out for others like you look out for yourself. It's not that you are up here and that everyone else is down here if you get the time. And what Jesus actually shows us by saying a second one is like it is to say that it is impossible to have a right relationship with God and not have a right relationship with people. What Jesus shows us is that we cannot be in worship on Sunday mornings and say that we worship God with hands lifted high and then hold our neighbors and our friends and those in the world with contempt. In order to honor God, we must also honor people And if we honor people rightly out of a heart that loves God, we will also love God more and honor him more deeply in our lives. Friends, I want you to know that um, most of you know that that I am a student of history and and especially American history. And uh, and I, I love studying that stuff and reading that stuff. I'm a nerd with it. I have a whole section in my library at home that's just American history and political history. I want you to know that today, living in the United States of America, we are probably more divided than we have been in at least 50 years. We have not had this sort of hostility and contempt towards those who disagree with us politically or socially probably since the tumultuous 60s. And we we need to wake up as a people and recognize what's going on. That having a disagreement is one thing, but when we hold people in contempt with bitterness and consternation because they have a difference of opinion than we do, that's a problem. And in the United States of America, we we have a hard time loving our neighbors who are different than us. We have a hard time loving our neighbors who are a different color than us. We have a hard time loving our neighbors who are registered in a different political party than us. Or who, has a, who have a different view of marriage than we do. Or a different view of abortion than we do. 
We have a hard time loving people who have a different immigration status or citizenship than we do. And this is a problem in our society when it, it goes beyond disagreement to actually holding people with contempt and hatred and vitriol because of those differences. I actually saw a study a couple of weeks ago that was put out in partnership with Harvard University that actually says that we are so divided as a people today that, that we are far less likely to hire a repairman or to see a doctor if we find out that they hold a different political persuasion than we do. Does anybody else have a problem with this? Like we are so locked into our political tribes that we literally see people who differ with us as less thans. And we actually dehumanize one another. Now brothers and sisters, I'm going somewhere with this. Jesus says that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. Twitter doesn't really encourage us to do that. Fox News and CNN, they don't really encourage us to do that. Talk radio does not encourage us to do that. Politicians and political leaders don't encourage us to do that. If there's to be any hope for our society, it must come from Jesus followers who should be the light to a world that hates in darkness. And we should be the people of love, even to those who we vehemently disagree with. And so I want you to see that Jesus expect us, expects us to be compassionate towards those around us, regardless of whether they are like us or not. Because you see, in the first century world, it was easy for a Pharisee. And it was easy for a first century Jew to say, yes, I'm going to love, look out for, and sacrifice for those who look like me, sound like me, and believe like me. But Jesus turns that upside down and says, no, 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 here's your neighbor. Your neighbor includes those who are the exact opposite of you. If you don't believe me, read Luke 10 in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Because Jesus uses in the parable of the Good Samaritan as the hero of the story, the hero of the story was the Samaritan, the guy who was mixed race, the guy who was the, the minority, the guy who was hated among the Jewish people. Jesus turns our ideas of who neighbor is upside down. And so this morning, friends, what I want to do is I want to walk us through at least three categories of people around us who deserve our love and whom we should be looking out for to serve and, and, and give compassionate deeds towards. Number one, I want to encourage you quickly to love the unassuming. Love the unassuming. And here's what I mean by this. When you look at the parable of the Good Samaritan, we don't have time to look at it, but when you look there, the hero of the story is the Samaritan. He was the least likely hero of Jesus' story. He would have been the least likely person to go and help this Jew in need. And actually, the people that you thought would have been the heroes were actually portrayed as the villains. You know, when you look at life today, it doesn't make sense for someone who is a conservative Christian to serve a, a liberal atheist. It doesn't make sense for a, a, a white person to be very close friends with a minority or vice versa. There are a lot of things societally because of the walls which we build that just don't make sense on the surface level. It doesn't make sense for someone who is upper class to interact with and have deep friendships with those who are on welfare or food stamps because we have these categories in which we live. 
And so there are those in our society who just don't expect anything from anyone who doesn't look like them or act like them. And so when we are a neighbor to someone who we go to school with, or we live next door to, or we work with, or we have friendship with, when they don't look like us, talk like us, hold our same values, and we look for opportunities to serve them and bless them with our words and with our actions, what we are doing at that moment is we're loving the unassuming because that person would just assume that you would have nothing to do with them. And so we should be looking for random acts of kindness that we can do for people, whether we're in the cash, uh, the cash outline, whether we're in our neighborhoods, whether we're at work or school, do we look for opportunities to simply bless those who are not expecting us to do that? That should just be characterizing our lives in loving the unassuming. Secondly, and I want to spend a little bit of time here because I think it's very relevant for our current context, we should love the unloved. We should love the unloved. And friends, I want you to know that it, it's going to seem like Pastor Chris is going to be pretty political in just a moment. I assure you I'm not. It's the least thing on my mind this morning. I want to call us as Christians to make sure that we have our mindsets and our worldview more colored by the text of Scripture than we do our political allegiances or the TV that we watch. God cares about the unloved. And the unloved are manifested in many different ways, both in the scriptures and in our current context. But I think about the men, the women, and children who walk our streets who don't have a home. They're homeless, and they don't have a job, and they don't have resources. They're the destitute. They are the least of these. I think about the minorities in our communities and we think about the things that we see on TV with policing and we see things about incarceration rates and we see things that are going on in different communities, both the African-American community, minority communities, and we see the response by, by the majority and whites. Sometimes I just look at that and I go, there's just a lack of empathy there. It doesn't mean that any one side has to be always right, but there's just a lack of empathy that we have towards one another. We should look at some of those folks and we should say that those people are, are part of the unloved. And I should have a different disposition there. I think about the orphans who are in this world. There are over 150 million orphans on planet earth today who do not have a mom and they do not have a dad. And they live in orphanages. And God cares about them. Deeply, I think about the 75, 85, and 95-year-old women who are true widows and they are living in homes, or they are living in apartments, and they have no children, and they have no family looking out for them, and they are all alone in this world. God cares about their plight. God cares about their isolation. Here's what I want to show you from the Old Testament to the New. God cares about the unloved. He cares about the immigrant. He does. He cares about the immigrant, whether they are legal or illegal. Yes, God's people, amen. He cares about them because they are people created in his image. He cares about their plight running from their countries where they are unsafe or where they are being chased. He cares about their heart. You can debate immigration laws all day long, but he cares about that heart. He cares about that human. Let me show you this from the scriptures. In Leviticus 19 verse 33, when you see the word stranger, use the word immigrant. You could even think illegal immigrant because in the context in the Old Testament world, this is what it could mean. 
He says, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. Do you hear familiar language there? For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And Isaiah 1, in, in, in indicting, in, in, a, in a word of judgment to Judah, God says this towards his people, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Hebrews 13, two in the New Testament, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, to immigrants. James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows and their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And Deuteronomy 27 says this, that God treats this issue so strongly and so passionately. Listen to what he says in Deuteronomy 27. Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. And all the people shall say, Amen. Friends, Christians should approach the least of these differently than the secular world approaches the least of these. I pray this morning that God would grab all of our hearts. He has mine, friends. He has I think about some of the comments and some of the viewpoints that I had just three or four years ago, and God has just convicted my heart over those things, and I've been on my face before God just repenting from my ignorance and repenting from my lack of empathy and repenting from my lack of concern over the least of these in this world. I pray today that God would do the same in your heart and continue to do that in mine. History tells us that the early church followed God's commands here. In the Greco-Roman world, when they suffered several plagues and epidemics in the 3rd and 4th centuries, one historian and sociologist traced how the Christians' reaction to those plagues differed dramatically from that of those who maintained faith in traditional polytheistic paganism. The Roman emperor Julian was quoted as saying this, The impious Christians support not only their poor, but ours as well. Everyone can see that our people lack aid from us. And this morning, every one of us in this room has a calling from God to be just as countercultural in the 21st century as the impious Christians were in the 4th. We must be the voices for the oppressed and the disenfranchised. We must be the hands and feet of Jesus to the least of these. I want to share my heart with you this morning because I'm, I'm the kind of guy that I'm, I'm a very politically astute dude. If you want to argue politics, I, I can do it. I know things that most people would say, man, you are really a geek. <laughs> but let me tell you something this morning. I love, I, I love following that stuff and I'll participate in it. But I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus... You must not get your talking points on orphan care, welfare, or immigration policy, or anything like that. You must not get your talking points from the Republican National Committee. 
And you must not get your talking points from the Democratic National Committee or the Socialist Party of America. You must not get your ideology driven by talk radio, by Fox News, CNN, or MSNBC. As a follower of Jesus, we must allow the scriptures of God, the truth of God, the heart of God, to encapsulate our hearts and our minds towards the unloved. And this morning, you may not have opportunity or a specific calling to do something about every single plight of injustice in this world. But brothers and sisters, by God's grace and mercy, how dare you or I not give a rip about it? If God cares about people and human beings, we must also care about those human beings. This morning, you may not have the ability to adopt an orphan, but some of you do. And God may lead you to do that. Every one of us in this room doesn't have the opportunity to personally minister to an immigrant. But we should all refer to them as human beings loved by God. And not with the consternation that we hear on TV. They're people. This morning, we may not, may not, may not be able to cure hunger in our streets. But you could volunteer at the Christian Homeless Center in downtown Lowell. There are so many ways that we can love the unloved. But this morning, what I want you to know is that when Jesus tells us that we should love our neighbor as ourselves, the unloved is a large part of that calling. So we should love the unassuming. We should love the unloved. Lastly, I'll be very quick here. We should love the unengaged. We should love the unengaged. Because God's ultimate passion is to see all the nations worship him in spirit and truth. And this morning, here is the global reality. I just double-checked my statistics this morning on joshuaproject.net. And if you care about unreached people groups, if you care about global missions, or you want to begin having a heart for the unreached around the globe, I would very much commend to you that website, www.joshuaproject.net. It will give you all the information that you could ever want to have on every people group on this planet. And here's the reality. This morning, there are about 17,000 people groups, different ethnic groups on planet Earth. And it's what Jesus talks about in Matthew 28, 19 and 20 in the Great Commission when he says, make disciples among all nations, panta ta ethne, ethnic groups, people groups. There are about 17,000. And of those 17,000, over 7,000 of them are considered unreached, meaning that they do not have sufficient witness in and of themselves to saturate that people group with the gospel of Jesus. It con they, the people who live in those people groups constitute over 40% of the global population. I want you to think about that for a moment. 40% of the global population live in a culture and an ethnicity who do not have proper access to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I wonder this morning if we even think about the way in which we have gone out this last week and this week and serving the nations and serving others in Jesus' name, would God be tugging at your heart this morning to begin praying for the nations, to become more educated on what God's doing among people groups and ethnicities who don't look like you or talk like you. That God may even be tugging your heart to give more sacrificially towards your church and towards global mission. That God may be tugging your heart to say, next trip, next missions opportunity that Mill City puts before us, I'm actually going to take the next step to actually go. 
God wants us to love the unassuming around us. He wants us to love the unloved in this world. And he wants us to love the unengaged. Comprehensive devotion to God. Compassionate deeds towards people. The last thing that I want to show us from this text in relationship to the greatest command is that it also means complete dependence upon Jesus. Complete dependence upon Jesus. For you see, you or I could fall in the same camp this morning as this first century Pharisaical lawyer. Is that we could be so familiar of the things of God and we could reduce worship of God to simply following some commands, doing some religious rituals, or helping some poor people. As a matter of fact, this would probably constitute a lot of the West's spiritual belief system. And that we can think somehow that if we just go and correct injustices or correct oppression or bring justice to injustices or give money or help out a little bit, that that's what God is really about here. But it's not. I want you to see something. In verse 40, Jesus says, On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. I think another translation says, on these two commandments, all other commandments hang. So Jesus is definitely telling us that these two are very, very important. But instead of looking at this and asking the question, what's the bare minimum in order to get in, which a lot of us, I think if we were honest at one point in our lives, probably thought, Jesus answers with that very familiar line of loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he brings us that whole thing saying that all the other commandments, all other 600 plus, rest on these two. What does he mean by that? D.A. Carson, a New Testament theologian, says it this way. He says, these two commandments are the greatest because all Scripture hangs on them. Meaning this, that nothing else in Scripture can be truly obeyed unless these two are observed. Unless your heart changes... Unless God gives you a new heart and you are captivated by the things of God and he does something inside of you, you will never feel about God or think towards God or feel or think or behave towards the people in this world the way in which he wants you to feel or think. Now, earlier in Matthew, here's where we see the link of Jesus, the link to Jesus, because I want you to know that this isn't just about you leaving today to try harder. This is about you surrendering to Jesus. In Matthew 5, 17, in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this about himself. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so what Jesus tells us between Matthew 5 and Matthew 22 is that all of these commandments that God commands us to do, all these mindsets that God is commanding us to have, I haven't come to abolish that stuff. I've come to fulfill it. I'm what all of that stuff points towards. And so instead of you trying to fulfill every commandment, all 613 of them, look to me because I've obeyed them perfectly. And why is this important? Because in Matthew 5, 48, Jesus doesn't tell us to be good. Jesus doesn't tell us to do more good deeds. Jesus doesn't tell us to try to earn or work our way to God. As a matter of fact, he gives us a more stringent 
uh, uh, standard than that. In Matthew 5.48, he says this, You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And so why try to follow commandments perfectly when the commandments were never given for you to follow them perfectly? All the commandments were given to show you that you can't. All the commandments were given to show you in the law that for centuries and generations that through all the atonement and the sacrifices that were done year by year is that you can never do what God has commanded you to do perfectly. And so all those commandments pointed towards me when I would come and I would perform them perfectly. And I would be God's perfect standard. And this brings to life Hebrews chapter 10 this morning. And Hebrews chapter 10 verse 11, remind yourself of this or hear it for the first time. It says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Religious ritual will never take away sins. Following commandments will never take away sins, the writer of Hebrews says. But... When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he is perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Friends, here's the truth this morning. God has made a lot of commandments that men are to follow. And ultimately, all of them hang on loving him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving your brothers and sisters and fellow man as yourself. But the reality is, you can't do that the way in which God intended for you to do that because of sin. And so what he did is he sent his perfect son into the world to obey perfectly the law of God and also pay the penalty and punishment for sin so that anyone today who would repent of their sins and place faith in Jesus, God will now enable you to do that which he originally created you to do, to comprehensively love him and compassionately love your neighbor. And so this morning, I wonder whether you are very religiously experienced or whether you are completely new to this and are just trying to figure things out, would you place complete dependence in Jesus today and recognize that there are so many things that are familiar to us that we may completely miss the boat on and miss the point on. And if you think that you are so experienced and you've so got this thing figured out, you might be in just the same danger that this first century Pharisee was. So this morning, would you let Jesus question your familiarity with your religion? Will you let Jesus question the authenticity of your faith? And would you see Jesus as the ultimate answer to every spiritual question that we have ever asked? Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for instructing us and teaching us. Thank you for drawing us to yourself. And this morning, I simply pray this simple prayer. Would you expose the misunderstandings and misapplications of your word? And then would you bring resolution and correction to them in the face of the gospel of your son, Jesus. And we pray all these things in his name. Amen.